Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We thank you that as we read it and meditate on it, Lord, that it's not just um, another book that we would just read and meditate on, Lord, but you promise that it is living and active and it actually changes our hearts and lives. So we pray that as we interact with your word this morning, Lord, that you would change our hearts, change our lives, that you would not only just engage our minds, but also our heart and our emotion and our wills and ultimately grow us in our affection and love for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, recently, I was uh, watching TV. I think it was last Sunday night I was watching TV, and I saw um, a report on 60 Minutes, which I don't ever watch 60 Minutes. For some reason, I turned it on uh, that night and watched it, and they were doing a really interesting story on the city of Detroit. I don't know if it was a new story or whether it was an old one. It was a, city, it was a story on Detroit, and of course, Detroit has been uh, most famously reported on recently for a city that has declared bankruptcy. And what the, um, what the reporter did is he drove through cities, as parts of Detroit and uh, different neighborhoods and all this sort of stuff and reported on actually what is happening in the city of Detroit. And actually what he said is the, the, the gentleman who had reported on the city had been traveled all over the world and he said actually parts of Detroit reminded him of some of the slums of Mogadishu. But he actually said there are also sections of Detroit that you can drive through and see that they are on the up, where businesses are returning, where uh, young people are desiring to live, where it's becoming cool and exciting to be a part of the city. And what you got the sense of in the city of Detroit is that it's a city of extremes. On one hand, it's got intense problems with intense poverty, and on the other side, it's got great things that are happening and developing And as I watched this, I thought just more and more about our very own city. I I thought about the city of Baltimore. Now, one thing that Baltimore loves about Detroit is the fact that we can say, well, at least we're not as bad as Detroit. We love that Detroit's out there because Baltimore has its issues, but we've always just, you know, prided ourselves. Well, we're not that bad. We're not as bad as Detroit. But Baltimore really has some of the same issues. There are neighborhoods in Baltimore that are great places to live, that are exciting, that are expensive, where lots of really great and wonderful things are happening. But there's also parts of Baltimore where the story is very, very different. In fact, in the late, uh, in in 1990, Time Magazine did an article on third world conditions in the first world. And Baltimore neighborhoods were featured on the front page of that magazine. Our city is a city of extremes in some ways, extremes of places that are great and wonderful, but also places of poverty, places of crime, and places of oppression. It's so pronounced that someone once described it this way. Dan Rodericks of the Baltimore Sun described it this way. He said, Baltimore is your unpredictable uncle in a bathrobe. Sweet one minute, grouchy the next, as kind as an old friar today and as menacing as a hitman tomorrow. This town will baffle you. It is sane and insane, charming and ugly, cosmopolitan and puny, brilliant and middling, future thinking and stuck in his ways. What he's saying is that it is very many, in very many ways, it is a city of extremes. 
Well, Luke chapter 8, the passages that we looked at this morning, is actually a passage of great extremes as well. It tells two very different stories of miraculous healings that Jesus accomplished when he was here on this earth. But those stories are actually very different. And they're actually very extreme in their own way. But Luke intentionally put these two stories together. The Gospel writer Matthew and Mark did the very same thing. And the reason they put those two, these two stories together is they want us to see something very powerful. They want us to be able to see the extremes. The first side is a story about Jairus, a synagogue ruler. His position was very important in Jesus' day. It was a position of high esteem, and it was a position in that culture that was a little different than what we're used to in our culture. In Jesus' culture, the, the politics of governance and the politics of religion were very much intermingled. So essentially what that means is if you are a person of high religious esteem, then you are a person of high esteem in that culture. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand in a culture that ties very hard to separate church and state. But in Jesus' day, if you were of religious esteem, you were of cultural esteem. And Jairus was a man of religious esteem. He was a synagogue ruler He'd be responsible for the reading of the law, for the exposition and the uh, observance of the commandments. He was very important, he was very well known, and he was very respected by everybody in that culture of Jesus' day. Yet the story tells us something had tragically gone wrong in his life, in the fact that his only daughter, his very own daughter, who was 12 years of age, had taken ill And she was ill to the point where she was about to die. She was about to pass away. And 12 would have been a particularly tragic age for that to happen because 12 was right around the time when a young woman in that culture would be betrothed to be married. So at a point in her life where exciting things are about to happen, she takes ill to the point of where she is on her deathbed, ready to pass away. I'll tell you, I have a lot of fears in my life, but one of the most intense fears I would ever have is the, is the thought of losing one of my children. In fact, I don't think there's anything in this world that says brokenness and injustice and, 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 and the evidence of sin in our world than when you see the death of a child before the death of even their parents, when a, when a, when a, when a, when a parent outlives their child. There's nothing that's more evident of the brokenness and the sadness that exists in our world than those sorts of tragedies. And the truth is, that is the tragedy that this family, that this particular synagogue ruler was having to face. His very own daughter was about to pass away. But the truth is, at the very same time that daughter was being born, 12 years ago, a very different story was starting to materialize for another woman that lived in that town. Because a woman in that town, 12 years before this event, had begun to bleed. And she'd begun to bleed in such a way that she couldn't stop the bleeding. It was a constant sort of bleeding that would happen. And she saw every doctor that she could in town. She visited every physician, she visited every expert, she visited every person that she could to help her out in her situation, but tragically, for whatever reason, she couldn't find anybody to heal her. Well, as we said before, this was a particularly religiously charged culture. 
And one of the things the religion of that day said is that if you were bleeding, or if you were in contact with a dead body or anything along those lines, then you would be considered ceremonially unclean. And if you were declared ceremonially unclean, then you were prohibited from worship. And if you were prohibited from worship, you were really actually prohibited from the very culture itself. If you were declared unclean, then you would be moved to the margins of society. You would be considered outcast. You would be considered unclean. And no one would be going to come near you because if they rub shoulders with you, they would run the risk of becoming unclean too. So imagine for 12 years this woman has lived with this. Not only has she dealt with the physical ailment that she's, that she's uh, having to be concerned with, but she's also having to deal with the fact that she's been culturally estranged, that she's been pushed to the margins. So much so that no one would be even willing to touch her for fear that they would become unclean as well. She would be viewed with fear, and she would be viewed with suspicion, and she's had to deal with this for 12, very, for 12 very, very long years. But what's beautiful about our story, and it's a story of extremes, is that here this, 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 this man, this synagogue ruler of high esteem, experiences the healing of Christ. And so did this woman who's on the bottom rung of society, this woman who's an outcast, who hasn't been touched probably for 12 years, these two extremes of society, and yet both this day get to experience the healing of Jesus. I think there's, there's four really profound things that Luke wants us to see out of this story about the gospel and about the nature of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the very first, and this is why they couple these two things together, the very first is that Luke wants us, his readers, to understand that the salvation that Jesus offers is a salvation that is for all people. It is a salvation that is for all people. You know, the tendency throughout Christian history and even the truth of, of, of Christian history nowadays is that very many people unconsciously act as if the gospel is only for them. I don't think we explicitly do it. I don't think we go out and say, well, the gospel is only for me. But I think a lot of us unconsciously act as if the good news of the gospel is only for a select few certain people. If you read the book of Acts, you'll realize that as soon as Jesus ascended back into heaven, his followers were left with starting to establish a church on their very own. And the immediate thing that starts to happen once Jesus ascends back into heaven is that his followers tend to uh, just hang out with people that look just like them. They tend to talk about Jesus with people that have the same kind of religious convictions with them, that look the same, that have the same uh, cultural pedigree, the same nationality. And what God constantly has to do throughout the book of Acts is step in and disrupt them from their holy huddle. Disrupt them and push them out into the margins, into people groups and differences and different people that don't look like them and act like them because the gospel, because salvation is for all people and it's for all different kinds of people. Luke wants us to see that the gospel is not just for the rich and for the affluent, but it's also for the poor and for the outcast. It's not just for the socially acceptable who are respected and who are esteemed, but it's for those who are ostracized. It's for both. 
See, the truth is the gospel is bigger than any specific socioeconomic group. It's bigger than any cultural moment. It transcends all contexts and all sorts of categories. It has just as much meaning for the best neighborhoods in Baltimore City as it does for the very worst neighborhoods in Baltimore City. The gospel defies all categories. If you've driven throughout the city, you know that there are certain streets in Baltimore. I won't name them, but there are certain streets in Baltimore where one side is very different than the other. Where one side is, represents one piece of Baltimore and the other side of the street is a very different Baltimore. When I talk to people about our city, I tell them about it and they say, ah, that can't be true. And then they come here and we drive around and we show them the very different sides of this city. And there have been times where I've driven that, and there are times when I've thought, what is it? What is the thing that can actually build bridges between these two very different cities, these two extremes that exist sometimes on different sides of the streets? And the answer becomes the gospel of Jesus Christ. In some ways, I think it is the only thing that can truly build bridges from those extremes. Because in some ways, the gospel, more than anything else, has a way of equalizing all of humanity. Because what the gospel tells us is that every person, no matter where they are socioeconomically, no matter where they are culturally, no matter what they do or what they've done, the gospel says that each one of us stands before God helpless. Each one of us stands before God spiritually bankrupt. The second thing Luke wants us to see is that recognizing our helplessness, when we really come to terms with our own helplessness before God, it pushes us to faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. Luke tells us that both of, both of his characters were captured by fear. Both of them came before Jesus, in a sense, because they were trembling. And part of the reason they came before Jesus in great fear and trembling is because they realized just how helpless they were to fix their situation. The truth is that you and I are confronted with our helplessness all the time. We don't like to think about it, but we're confronted with our helplessness because life just throws us difficult situations from time to time. You know, I think about myself. There are certain things that I know a lot about, and then there are certain things that I know nothing about whatsoever. I know nothing about cars. I understand that I have to put gas and oil in them from time to time. I understand that my tires should be inflated. But if for some reason my car breaks down, there's no sense of me looking under the hood whatsoever. You know, I can prop up that hood and I can look at it and make it look like I know what I'm doing by looking at that hood, but the truth is, I have no clue what I'm doing. It's, I'm helpless. There's, I, have no, I have no frame of reference in order to help fix a car. So I've conditioned myself that when my car breaks down, I call for help because I've come to terms with my helplessness. Maybe you're dealing with a certain ailment that seems bizarre. You can't figure it out. So what are we conditioned to do when we, when we, are, when we come up with some ailment that we can't figure out? We've got to call an expert because we feel helpless to fix ourselves. I can't tell you how many times as a parent I have felt helpless on how to control these children that God has given me. I can't tell you, 10 years in youth ministry, how many parents would call me every day and say, help, I am the parent of a teenager. 
and I acted like an expert, but really, as the longer I have kids, the more I realize just how helpless I am too. We're confronted with helpless situations all of the time. But, the, but Luke tells us that both the woman and both this, this synagogue ruler fell at Jesus' feet because they had been confronted with a situation in their life and they realized that they were absolutely helpless. You see, I think we can come to terms with our helplessness and sometimes the mundane things of life, but sometimes when it comes to our own spiritual lives, when it comes to what's happening inside of us spiritually, sometimes it's much more difficult to come before God recognizing just how helpless we are. I don't know if, uh, if, if you've been around Christianity long enough, you've heard a lot of people say that uh, Christianity is not about a bunch of rules, but it's actually about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is true. I believe that more than probably anything else. But if you read the Bible, what you come to terms with is, wow, there's actually a lot of rules in the Bible. I know it's about a relationship. I know it's not about the rules. But if you read a lot of the rules, or read a lot of the Bible, you realize there's actually a lot of rules here. And sometimes you wonder, well, what's the point of all those rules? There's lots of points to all those rules, but one of the points is this. Those rules are meant to help us to see just how helpless we are before God. See, the truth is of what the gospel tells us that's all throughout the scripture is that God only enters into relationship with people that have perfectly kept his rules. That heaven itself is a place for people that have perfectly kept God's rules. And if we err in just one aspect of those rules, if we err in just one aspect of that law, then we stand before God as rebels, not able to have a relationship with him. So God puts all these rules not only in the, in the scriptures, not only to show us the standard that he expects, but also to help us realize that we fall very, very short of those standards. That we are actually helpless to do anything in and of ourselves to make God love us. That there's nothing inside of us that we can conjure up to make God pour his favor upon us. Another way had to be accomplished. And when we really, truly come to terms with our helplessness, it pushes us towards this thing called faith. This thing called faith where we go before God and we say, God, I am helpless to heal me. I am helpless to fix the brokenness that exists in my life. I'm helpless to fix all the the ways that I've rebelled against you. I'm helpless to make myself right before you. I need you to show up, and I need you to heal me. The third thing that Luke wants us to see is that faith is the path to healing. You see, both of these characters that came before Jesus from very different extremes, both came before Jesus helpless, recognizing they've reached the end of what they can do to fix their situation. They need God to do something and to show up, and they demonstrated faith. And because they demonstrated faith, They experienced the healing that came with the relationship of Jesus Christ. They called on him to fix it. Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous pastor, said this. He used this as an illustration about the faith that truly saves us. He said this, Suppose a fire is in the upper room of a house, and the people are gathering in the street to watch this fire, to watch this house burn down. Yet, 
to everybody's horror, it's discovered that there is a child in the upper room. And everybody is asking, how is this child going to escape? He cannot leap down or he will be killed. So a strong man comes beneath and cries, drop into my arms. And Spurgeon says this, it is part of faith to know that the man is there. It's another part of faith to believe that the man is strong. But the essence of faith lies in the dropping down into the man's arms. You see, the essence of faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, is dropping into Jesus' arms and trusting in him with your life. Many of you, when we think about faith and we think about the nature of faith, we think, how is, how is this even possible? How can, I, how can I have this thing called faith? How can I... How can I have it? Well, first, I think we have to come to terms with the fact that we are helpless. Then we have to come to terms with the fact that despite our helplessness, Jesus is actually able. He is capable. You see, both of those people came before Jesus, not just coming to terms with their helplessness, but accepting and believing the fact that Jesus was one who could save them from their situation. And the truth is, when it comes to our own hearts spiritually, We are helpless, and the only person that is able to save us is Jesus himself. The essence of faith is dropping into his arms and saying, Jesus, I need you to save me. I need your healing. Many people think they have to have it all perfect. They have to have their faith perfect. They have to have it all put together and and strong and and great and beautiful before God before he will accept accept his healing. But the truth is, the people that came before Jesus in our story, they had imperfect faith. They were trembling. They were captured by their fears. They were probably secretly wondering whether this Jesus could really do what they had heard he is able to do. And the truth is, we come before God with imperfect faith all the time. There's a beautiful story about a man who came to Jesus also looking for healing. And Jesus says to that man, all you need is faith. And he says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, he understood in his own heart that there was this conflict between he believed, but he didn't all at the same time. He believed, but he had doubts. And the the beauty is Jesus embraces us with how meager and how little and imperfect our faith is and pours the healing of the gospel into our lives. How does he do this? How is it possible that we can receive this gift of faith? How is it possible that we can be healed? How is it possible that we could be saved from our own helpless estate before God? And this is what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus became unclean so that you and I could be, ta- be declared clean. Jesus became unclean so that you and I could be declared clean before the Father. One of the things that Luke is really careful to mention throughout the story in both extremes, and it's hard to miss if you don't really pay attention to it, but when it came to the situation with the woman, it says that she touched him and was healed. Luke wants us to see that she touched him. He also wants us to see that when Jesus walked into this room and he saw this this girl's dead body, that he went over and he grabbed her hand. In both cases, you see Jesus do something. You see him touching what the culture had declared unclean. 
What that would mean in that culture is if you came in contact with a dead body or you came in contact with another person that had been declared unclean, if you touched them, if you laid hands on them, if you rubbed shoulders with them, if you came in contact with them, then you yourself would be declared unclean. And what Jesus does in both of those instances is he touches a woman who probably had been feared to be touched for 12 years And he goes up and he touches this little girl's hand. In both instances, risking his own cleanliness in that culture. Risking his own cultural status. Risking his own religious piety in the eyes of everyone else. He was willing to dirty himself with the unclean in order to provide healing for them. The gospel tells us that when Jesus uh, came to this earth... He was the only person to ever keep all those rules that exist in the Old Testament. He was the only person ever to follow every single rule just as it was designed to be. He was the only perfect person that ever lived on this earth. Yet the scriptures tell us that he spread out his arms on the cross and bore our uncleanliness. He hung on that cross as if he was a dirty, common criminal that would be an outcast in our culture. And he did it so that you and I could experience healing. God knew that the only way for you and I to be declared clean before the Father is if his very own son, the perfect sacrifice, became unclean on our behalf. This is what Luke wants us to see. This is what the gospel tells us, that Jesus was the only one to perfectly keep the commandments, yet he was declared a sinner because he bore our uncleanliness on the cross. You know, the truth that Luke wants us to see is that all this might be true of you as well. The very thing that is true of these characters might be true of you as well. I don't know where you are or where you come from. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what sort of background you've lived in. I don't know where you are on the cultural ladder or whatever it might be. But the truth is Luke wants us to see that no matter who you are or what you've done or what strata of society you come from, God's salvation is made available to you. All you have to do is recognize just how helpless you are and to drop into his arms by faith the very arms that were outstretched on the cross on your behalf. And when we experience that healing, we experience the good news of the gospel in our lives. And we can be declared clean before the Father and experience the relationship with Jesus Christ that all of us were designed for from the very beginning.